Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. This is a Q&A podcast where I'm going to address many questions such as, what's the best definition for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What was the most compelling part of my interview with Rick Warren? What are my thoughts about MLK Jr.'s history with adulteries and why this isn't talked about more? Uh, Were there examples of female leadership in churches in the second and third century? Church services often feel like a weekly performance and event. And how do we get away from this? It's clear that sex within marriage should stay within marriage. But what does the Bible say about sex before marriage? And on and on it goes. My Patreon supporters have sent in over 60 questions. I will get to almost all of them. won't get to every single one, but I will get to the ones that they voted on most. If you would like to um, ask me a question, you have to be a Patreon supporter. So if you want to do that, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology and Raw. Become a supporter for as little as five bucks a month. Get access to premium content like the ability to grill me on these Q&A podcasts. So without further ado, let's jump in. Okay, so Tom asks, uh, what's the best definition that I have for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurs in a few accounts. Let's see, um, Matthew 12, Mark 3, uh, that's Matthew 12, 22 to 32-ish, Mark 3, 22 to 30, and then in Luke 12, 10. Um, I've, I've always understood this as accrediting something like this. I mean, just off the top of my head, something like accrediting the work of the spirit at work in Jesus to the work of Satan. I mean, that's kind of exactly what is going on in the text. Now, I think a lot of people that ask this question, there's kind of an underlying fear, like they think they you know, m- might have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or, you know, m- maybe they did it on accident, even they did something and, and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you know, curse you or whatever, they bumped their toe. And, and all of a sudden, they're like, oh, shoot, I can never go back, never be, I can never be forgiven for that. So I, I think it's um, quite a bit more profound than that. I, I don't think you can kind of commit it on accident. In fact, I don't even think it's kind of like a one time thing, like a really, really, really bad sin that you commit you know, and then you can kind of never go back on it. I I think it's much more profound than that. Um, We do have other scriptures like in Mark uh, 3.28, where Jesus says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of mankind and whatever blasphemies they utter. You have a whole huge profound theme of grace and forgiveness and, and lots of really, really bad people who did really, 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 really bad things being forgiven by God throughout scripture. So we do need to situate whatever this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is within the larger uh, paradigm of grace. I did a little research to see what other people were saying about this, and I actually found a really good article free online by uh, Sam Sam Storms. Uh, Sam Storms is a really, how would I characterize Sam? From I, mean, I don't think I've ever met him, um, but he seems to me like a really honest um thoughtful scholar. And he wrote an article online called 10 things you should know about uh, blasphemy of the Holy spirit. Um, and it was really good. I I thought, I mean, I, I, when I read it, I'm like this, I, you know, this captures what I think is going on in the text. So, um, he has a great paragraph here about halfway through the article where he says, blasphemy of the Holy spirit is willful, wide eyed slandering of the work of the, of the spirit attributing to the devil, what was undeniably divine. This then was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment. This was a persistent lifelong rebellion 
in the face of inescapable and undeniable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act committed only once in a moment of rage or rebellion, but a calloused attitude over time, a persistent defiance that hardens and calcifies the heart. I think that's... I, I that. I, th- I think I would agree with that. I think everything you're saying there, especially the emphasis on um, uh, the longevity of a calloused heart, I think is really important. Um, as I've uh, said, I think I heard somebody else say it, you know, years, years, years and years ago, if you're concerned about having committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you probably haven't done it then because people who blaspheme the Holy Spirit aren't concerned that they might have disobeyed God, you know, to some, you know, to the extent of never being forgiven. So next question. What was the most compelling part of my interview with Rick Warren? If you're not aware, I, just, I had uh, recently had Rick Warren on the podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, it was something that I've been trying to book for a while. And I know he's probably one of the busiest people I've ever heard of. And so I was just, you know, really um, uh, touched that he was able to do that interview. The most compelling part, <laughs> um, the fact that he knew I existed. <laughs> I truly, I mean, I was blown away when he was like, you know, at the beginning saying he's, you know, I don't know, I forget what he said, but it was like, oh, that he really loves that I ask good questions and all these things. I'm like, I, I didn't know you knew who I, I, yeah, had no clue. So he spent about, about half of the podcast explaining why he has shifted his view on women pastors. And then he spent the latter half uh, talking about him his interaction with the SBC and um, and how and why and the whole process of Saddleback, his church, getting kicked out of the SBC. Honestly, I, I was more interested in the latter. I, I, I did not bring him on to have him kind of like defend his view on women pastors. That wasn't, um, wasn't, uh, well, it wasn't part of the plan. He just kind of went there. And I was, I was totally fine for him to go there. But I mean, I, I was more interested in just kind of the ecclesiological um you know, uh, questions that surround, you know, um, uh, the SBC denomination and, and Saddleback getting kicked out for this reason and everything. So that, that was my main reason for having him on. So, but it was great. It was great to hear him, um, unpack his position and why he now is, I don't know if he used the t- term egalitarian, but at least why he would support women, uh, pastors. I mean, to be honest, you guys know I'm, I'm knee deep in a lot of the, these arguments and the literature and everything. So, so there wasn't like anything, there wasn't like an argument he used or, you know, referred to or summarized that I was like, Oh wow. You know, I haven't, haven't thought about that. Um, each one I've, I've, I have thought about, I've wrestled with, I, I've also, I guess one of the, one of the sides that he didn't give is kind of the, the complementarian responses to all those arguments. Like, like everything he was saying is, 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 pretty, you know, well-documented in the literature and at least complementarian scholars have responded to, I would say, all of um, the things he brought up. I'm not saying um, the complementarian scholars are right. I'm not saying Rick Warren's right. I'm just saying that it's not like, um, it's not like these were like kind of, none of these arguments kind of took me by surprise. If there was one that I thought was most compelling, I, you know, I do think I do think that at the beginning of, of his uh, talk um, that the Joel 2 reference to uh, men and women will prophesy, um, and, and not just that it, you have that one verse in Acts, was it 2.18, quoting Joel 2, but j- that does speak to kind of a, a large kind of paradigm shift, something really significant, a significant shift happening between the old and new covenant. That's what Joel 2 is looking forward to. And he situates 
he, he kind of broadens out the gift, or at least, you know, says that the gift of prophecy or, or people who prophesy are not just, you know, older men, but like lots of other people will be prophesying. Now, of course, there is a massive debate about what is prophecy? Is it akin to authoritative preaching? Um, or is it just kind of ad hoc, like revelations that God might give to random people, but not some kind of, you know, um, office in the church? Does it matter that it might be or might not be an office in the church? Um, and, and, you know, so there's lots of questions surrounding prophecy. I, I've this is one area of the debate uh, uh, that I have looked probably most extensively into, or at least, you know, among all the specific passages and issues, this is one that I, I feel like I, I have a decent handle on. And I would agree that New Testament prophecy is very similar to what we would call preaching. I wouldn't say it is preaching because you have other words that say preaching and they're not just synonyms with prophecy. But both the meaning of prophecy and how we see prophets um, prophesy in the New Testament and the overlap with other kind of word groups, especially the, like uh, the phrase like the word of exhortation. Um, you see a lot of overlap between word of exhortation and prophesy, prophecy um, and also the function of prophets in the ecclesiological structure of the church. Anyway, I'm, I'm summarizing a much bigger issue that I, I, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, but all that to say, I do agree with um, Rick that the presence of female prophets and females prophesying in the New Testament, um, to me, does suggest biblical grounds that, that they can uh, preach um, to a for, you know mixed congregation. Now, I, I, I'm not as convinced as Rick uh, was that um, in Acts chapter 2, you have women you know, preaching to what we would consider something akin to almost like a gathering of believers. I, I, I you know, Peter's the one that stood up and gave what we would call the sermon, you know? Um, so in that, in that specific passage, I, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not as convinced that that's the best place to go to as an example, a narrative example of women sort of preaching to a gathering of believers, but it does, it does say that they will do that in the prophecy, if that makes sense. Um, I, I think, yeah. So I, 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 I don't, I just don't want to squeeze more out of a passage than is clearly there. Um, so I, I'm, a, yeah, I'm a little more cautious about that, but again, at the end of the day, I think Rick and I would both, I would, I would agree with Rick that, um, women prophesying in the new Testament, specifically first Corinthians, uh, 11, five gives a clear reference. You have prophets, female prophets in, in, uh, Luke two in, in acts, what is it? 21, I think it's 21, 20 or 21, Philip's daughters. And yeah, you know, female prophets like Holda in the Old Testament too. So yeah, I do think that that's, that's uh, I do think that's significant. Some of his other um, arguments I was maybe le- less convinced of. Um, others, you know, a bit more, but uh, that's not part of this question. So I don't need to get into that. So um, yeah, let's, let's move on. Oh, this is, this is actually a separate question. It, uh, it says, are we as certain as Rick uh, Warren claimed that women Christians did teach or preach at Pentecost. So yeah, I already answered that. Um, I didn't, yeah, forgot that these were two different questions. Um, yeah, you've already heard my answer. I, I, no, I'm not as uh, certain as, as Rick is. Um, however, again, at the end of the day, I think whether they preached at Pentecost or not, I do think they were uh, preaching, namely prophesying, which included what we would consider some kind of preaching. I do think that it was happening in the first century church uh, by women. All right, next question. 
All right. Phil asks, uh, what are my thoughts about MLK Jr.'s history with adulteries and why it isn't talked about more, more uh, given today's Me Too movement, especially in the church? Well, let me say a couple things here. First of all, the fact that MLK did have uh, multiple affairs, um, that's that's been well documented. I have heard some people when, when, when this is brought up saying, are we sure? Isn't it just kind of a right-wing conspiracy thing? I'm, it's I, it's not. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, if you go back and read um, uh, David Garrow's uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book um, uh, biography on MLK called Bearing the Cross, it's a really big book. It's like five, 600 pages, um, extremely detailed and extremely well-documented. Um, it's one of the best, I, th- I think. Um, I mean, I don't, again, I'm, I'm, this isn't just my opinion. I think it's been hailed as one of the best, uh, most thorough biographies of MLK and the civil rights movement. Um, he has, I mean, extensive documentation of, of MLK's adulteries and, and like, it's not, it's not something he even like denied. Like it was, it just, it is what it is. So, yeah. So I thought it was so well established. I didn't know people weren't talking about it. Um, I guess there's a difference between saying that it didn't happen um, and then talking about MLK in glowing terms, you know, uh, versus simply addressing Me Too issues and maybe even praising MLK's civil rights movement without mentioning. There's a difference between just simply not mentioning it, but if somebody said, hey, did you know he you know, had multiple affairs? He said, yeah, yeah, I know that, but that's not kind of what I'm concerned about right now. There's a difference between that, I think, and, and people just flat out saying, oh, this didn't happen, you know. So, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, the answer is I don't, I don't know why certain people might not mention MLK in, um, in, as they talk about uh, the Me Too movement. I've heard people bring him up. I've heard other people not bring him up. And, again, I'm not sure why um, they wouldn't bring him up or wh- why they feel the need to uh, bring him up. I think for some people, maybe um, they might want a cleaner moral leader. Um, I think we not, uh, we do kind of tend towards binary, you know, like good and bad people, you know, like if, if this person did good things and he's a good person and everything about him must be good. And if, if he's bad, then everything about him must be bad. I, I think that's just part of our polarized uh, culture um, rather than, was it uh, Solzhenitsyn? I, I never know how to pronounce that dude's name, but yeah, who said you know the the line between good and evil runs down the middle of the heart of every person, or how, you know however he worded it. I think that's a more accurate representation of of humanity, um, and even really good people uh, sometimes do really bad things. It doesn't take away the good things they did, nor the good causes they fought for. It just means that humans are. Um, very uh, complex people, and oftentimes moral heroes are very complex people. I mean, honestly, if you want a, a cleaner civil rights leader, if you need somebody that's morally kind of squeaky clean, then go read Malcolm X. I mean, that dude is well. The F, uh, there's a quote in the movie. I think it's actually a documented FBI quote where the you know FBI agents were trying to find dirt on Martin Luther King, and you know they had plenty of dirt to find. Um, but when they tried to find dirt on Malcolm X, they just couldn't find anything. The dude was like so clean morally. I mean, you know, he was a Muslim. MLK was a Christian. So you have that. Yeah, I guess we have that factor to consider. But um, in terms of just like just moral behavior, Malcolm X was extremely um, a disciplined person. Um, and there's a quote in that in the movie Malcolm X. Um, 
you know, the FBI agents are, you know, kind of frustrated. They can't find anything. And they're like, man, compared to MLK, this guy's a saint. And <laughs> uh, I, th- I think there's, there's, um, I think that's pretty accurate. So, um, again, this doesn't take away all of the amazing things that, um, MLK did, nor the causes he fought for. It just means humans are complex figures. Um, heroes are complex. You know who else is a complex hero? Everyone in this, in the Bible, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, Abraham and Jacob and even Joseph and, and David, of course. And, you know, so, I mean, Solomon's a mess. I mean, there's on and on it goes like, you know, these people that we sing about in some, you know, in Sunday school, um, yeah, they had many skeletons in their closet as well. All right, next question. Were there examples of female leadership in churches in the second and third century? So this is not an area that I have uh, studied. Uh, I've only read stuff in passing, okay? Um, so I, I'm i going to reference a few characters here, but I, I would encourage you to chase down all of these references and do some fact-checking. Um, these are ones that I just have, have heard about, have read a tiny bit on, but I haven't done that part of the study yet. Uh, I will get to it. I do want to at least get to the first couple hundred years of the early church. Um, as I'm looking at the question of women and church leadership and, and try to see like, what, what was, what was the situation in the, in the early church, maybe like pre Constantine, uh, church just to have some kind of cutoff date. So I remember hearing about, uh, Ignatius, that early, early writer. Um, when's Ignatius late, first, early, second century, I think early second century. Um, he references a couple women, one in particular, Tavia, um, who I think might've been the way he references her. I don't have the reference in front of me, but, um, she might've been a, some kind of house church leader. And again, I'm going to assume that, you know, there's going to be debates about this, but some people reference her. Um, there's another woman, uh, is it Al C A L C E who he sends greetings to now, just cause he sends greetings to a woman doesn't necessarily mean she's a leader. Um, but if he's, you know, kind of sending greetings to all these church clear male church leaders, and then a couple of his greetings are to women that does at least raise the question in the early second century, Roman, the Roman governor, Pliny, the younger, he wrote a letter to, let's see, um, I think it's to another Roman leader about how to deal with these Christians. And he references two women that are called, that he calls um, in Latin, uh, ministre, ministre, which is translated, well, it's kind of like servant or deacon. Oh yeah, I do have this quote. So he says, uh, Pliny says, um, accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who are called deacons. Now, to, to my understanding, these Roman leaders only would persecute or torture people who are kind of recognized authorities or leaders um, in, in the church. Um, they wouldn't just pick some random person in the congregation and torture them. They would you know, go, to, go to the leader. So while um, there might be some, yeah, so there's, you know, there's question marks about you know, the role of deacon was that an authoritative position. Is this even an office or is it, are they just, you know, servants, which can, could, could be a reference to a leader. Leaders are called servants, but non-leaders are called servants too. So, but, but that does raise questions. You know, they're called deacons. They, they, um, they're the target of torturing. So, 
again, uh, I, I, I'm not ready to say here's an example of, you know, two female pastors in early church. Um, but it, it is a situation I think we would need to consider. You have, uh, Thecla in the apocryphal, apocryphal acts of Paul. So this is not an inspired account of Paul's, uh, journeys, but most scholars say that um, there was an actual historical Thecla. In fact, both Gregory and uh, Basil uh, spoke of Thecla as a historical figure. Um, Let's see, are there other examples? I I just kind of jotted down. You do have reference to older women with the, in the early church, um, using the phrase presbyter, like the female form of like the female form of elder, basically. Now, elder could refer to a position. It could refer to an old man. Um, likewise, the female form of elder could refer to an old woman, like it does in First Timothy 5, uh, is it 1 and 2. Or it could refer to a female position, a leadership position. Basil, the Cappadocian father, I believe, let's see, I'm, uh, according to, where did I get this from? Somebody that I read says that Basil uses presbytera, that's a female form, um, in the sense of a woman who is the head of a, of a religious community. Again, this is according to some article that I found that was documenting some of these things. So again, go fact check both me and um, this article. Um, I can't remember where I got the article from, um, but yeah, so... And there's, there's other examples I'm missing, um, but I think that's enough for you to chew on. So again, I'm not saying these are clear examples. I'm saying these are ones that are often uh, referenced. Sorry about the phone call. I'm, I'm actually in a, a hotel room right now. I brought my portable mic. Um, I'm in a hotel room. I have a little thing here in a, in a second. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if you heard it, but earlier, <laughs> some house, housekeepers banging on the door. Wanted to clean my room, and I—I I don't know if you heard that, but I—I I paused it and had to get up and do that. And now the phone's ringing, and anyway, is, I've never been so so disturbed in a hotel room before. All right, uh, next question here. This, this is this is a uh, kind of a sensitive one. I got to be careful with how I respond to this one. Okay, so next question says, um, church services often feel like a weekly event or performance. And, uh, like, you know, it's the main way of being part of a church is you attend a church service. How do we practically move away from this? And, and the reason why I, um, I added that caveat is, is just because I, you know, I, and, you know, I talked about this at last year's exiles of Babylon conference that, you know, I said, I have a love hate relationship with the church that can be jarring to some the word hate and church in the same sentence. But I, you know, I, I hope that I explained what I actually meant by that. Um, I don't. Um, I have nothing but a love relationship with the gathering of believers and what um, that gathering is intended to look like, um, the sharing of resources, the um, exuberant hospitality, the the breaking of bread, the drinking of wine, the celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, the prayers, confession, the, you know, the deep, rich fellowship um, where... Um, your, your spiritual bond runs deeper than blood. You know, you call each other brother and sister and mean it and so on and so forth. Like all that New Testament stuff I absolutely love. I think certain attempted expressions to capture that vision um, don't always hit the mark. And sometimes when the ones that don't hit the mark, I'm just not really jazzed about. Um, so, yeah, so I wrestle with that. And, you know, I wrestle with 
you know, we're not, we don't live in the first century. And guess what? The first century church wasn't all it's cracked up to be. I mean, read First Corinthians or at pretty much every other letter Paul wrote. Like churches were, they, they were a mess, okay? So I, I don't want to glamorize a first century church either. Um, so, and, and also like I, I, I think um, throughout my Christian journey, um, you know, sometimes I think I may have gone too far at criticizing th- certain things in the church when I, 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 I maybe don't balance it out by really praising and honoring the, the, the good intentions, at least, um, th- that uh, church leaders have in, in, in how they're trying to reach people, how they're trying to create, create community. And it doesn't all fall on the church and leaders. Sometimes, you know, followers or non-leaders in a church, you know, suck and just <laughs> don't know how to, you know, engage people well. So it, it, I... I um, it's complicated. It's complicated. Both the, the question is complicated and um, uh, how to improve the weekly gathering or, or the weekly rhythm of church, how to improve that is complicated. And I think our response, our complaints, our concerns um, are, also, uh, are also complex. So anyway, I am not... Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed this portion of the Patreon-only Q&A podcast. If you'd like to listen to the full-length episode and receive other bonus content like monthly podcasts, opportunities to ask questions, access to first drafts of my research and monthly Zoom chats and more, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw to join Theology in the Raw's Patreon community. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.